1: plushcare.com slash weight loss and i said uh, take control and dom said no 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 it's take back control that is really really important it's not take control it's take back and i think that genuinely was a stroke of genius
0: this is free exchange from capex i'm oliver wiseman capex's editor. My guest this week is Gisela Stewart. Gisela was elected as the Labour MP for Birmingham-Edgbaston in the 97 landslide that brought new Labour to power. Her seat had elected a Conservative MP for the previous 99 years, but Gisela won as the Labour candidate in five successive elections before stepping down in 2017. Gisela became a household name relatively late in her political career. During the 2016 referendum, she was the most senior Labour Brexiteer, chairing the Leave campaign, taking part in the televised Wembley debate watched by millions and touring the country with Boris Johnson and Michael Gove in the now infamous Vote Leave battle bus. As a German-born ally of uber-europhile Tony Blair, she was, on paper at least, an unlikely person to head the campaign to take Britain out of the EU. But meeting Giesler, it soon becomes clear you're dealing with an original thinker reluctant to follow anyone's lead on a question as significant as Europe. I spoke to Gisela about the reason for her Euroscepticism, the state of the Brexit debate, whether she supports the Prime Minister's deal, the legacy of the referendum and the health of her party, including whether or not she would continue to take the Labour whip were she still an MP. I started, however, by asking her what she made of Jeremy Corbyn's recent U-turn on the question of a second referendum.
1: I think it is one of those occasions which you will only understand or begin to understand if, if you put them in the broader context of that we've got a, a system where the, the, the leaders of both main political parties are actually at heart convinced of something which the majority of their own bank benchers aren't. So Theresa May is delivering Brexit, uh, even though she herself campaigned to, to remain. And there's Jeremy Corbyn, who uh, the Labour Party was a a, a Remain campaigning organisation, and if you look at his voting records, you know his his history uh, of Euroscepticism makes mine uh, pale into insignificance. So he's trying. To, so both leaders are trying to get to a position where Theresa May wants a deal, and Jeremy Corbyn wants a general election. And both of them are helping to get there without dividing their own parties more Mm -hmm. than the other sides. Mm -hmm. So it's a real kind of relative game. So what Jeremy Corbyn is trying to do is he still at heart wants a general election. Uh, He suddenly saw a number of his MPs leaving the party. uh, And a group of them did it over the referendum. The others did it over anti-Semitism. And he's now just trying to put a hold to this. And if you look at the motion, uh, which Labour has tabled for tomorrow's vote, uh, it kind of is almost undeliverable. So it's creating a, a, a position where they're creating riddle room, not by creating spaces, but, but creating impossible positions. Uh, and John Mann uh, was very interesting today when he compared uh, Jeremy Corbyn's decision to appear to be making this this U-turn with the the Nick Clegg moment over tuition fees. Because there is one thing of voters disagreeing with you, and your own core voters may disagree with you on one or two subjects, but they're still, broadly speaking, are with you. Or if voters reach a point where they say, I can't believe anything you say. And if that's the situation, then... uh, this will cost Labour more dearly than the Tories.
0: And, but which of those do you think it is? I mean, do you think it's, uh, in terms of, do you, do you agree that it's the neck leg moment? I mean, it's a...
1: I think it is very dangerous. Yeah. Uh, and it is dangerous because uh, at least the, the you know, in the Midlands, the kind of swing seats, the core areas of the country which deliver your government, uh, I think it is less likely that that they will vote for us uh, and therefore it is less likely that even in a general election you will have a Labour government.
0: And what about, I mean, aside from the, the tactical pros and cons, what about your views on the idea of, a I mean, you're the leading Labour um, figure in the Leave campaign. So, you know, the the idea of a second referendum on principle, I mean, do you think this is something that, um, you know, I mean, what, what, what do you think of it on its own terms rather than just the tactics of it?
1: I genuinely cannot see a single redeeming feature in the notion for a second referendum. If, if you just take this through from uh, the, the, the purely practical one, when people say uh, the, the uncertainties of the moment are damaging for business investment decisions, well, if you think they're damaging now, uh, having to have legislation, having to have uh, a, a campaign and all those things all you're doing is prolonging the uncertainty. And you are not guaranteed a different outcome. Because I can just see a a referendum which is fought on the basis of saying, so which bit of leaving did you not understand last time round? So you could have further delay, further uncertainty and the same result. And if the the MPs for the last two years have been telling us the decision to, to negotiate leaving... Is so difficult. We haven't been able to do it in two years. What makes you think that the very same politicians, but this time after referendum, would have to deal with a new European Parliament after the European election, with a new European Commission? Uh, what makes you think they're going to get a deal? The second thing is, I think it is enormously damaging for democracy, because if you, if representative politicians, ask you a direct question, and All sides tell you it's a a once-in-a-generation decision. All sides tell you we will do whatever you tell us to do. And two and a half years on, they haven't done it. Uh, I think the anger will be considerable. And also, if if I look at the the polling which has been going on, the sense I get is that positions are getting more entrenched. There's a group in the centre which is just getting incredibly tired and bored with it all. But I see no big changes in opinion.
0: And you think, so, I mean, if, if it did come to it, you'd be confident of a, of a leave win the second time around? Partly because of this whole, you know, not just the pros and cons of Brexit, but the point of principle about, a, you know, we, we've already given the answer on this question, kind of get on with it, sort of sentiment.
1: But I find that rather cold comfort uh, because I think the process of a second referendum mm-hmm. and the campaign itself would do the very thing which we've been trying to overcome over the last months, not not successfully. But I think one thing we all agree on is that deep divisions within society have exposed themselves. I don't think Brexit created them. It, it showed them up in, in sort of big neon lights. Mm-hmm. And the second referendum uh, would only deepen those divisions, and I just can't see any benefit in that whatsoever.
0: OK, well, let's, um, let's talk about the... Um The other side of the current Brexit stuff, which is the Prime Minister's deal. Um, If you were still a member of the House of Commons, how would you be voting uh, on that deal uh, as it currently stands? And also if she got some sort of changes on the backstop, which is what everyone expects her to get something on, if she's going to get anything, what would your your position be?
1: I think what would be crucial for me, given that all the, the caveats about that I deeply regret we ended up where we are, Uh, you know, Ireland should have been taken out as a separate treaty, all kinds of things. But she did agree. uh, She did what I think was a big tactical error back uh, Christmas the year before when she agreed to the sequence Mm -hmm. of negotiations. But there we are. So today for me, despite all the misgivings I have about her deal, the key thing is if she comes back with something which allows you to get out of the backstop, which does not make it like a lobster pot that once in, you you cannot get out. I would take a deep breath and say, OK, so be it. This is better than being locked in for good or staying in.
0: And do you think some of your... Do you think more and more of your mostly conservative um, kind of campaigning colleagues in the referendum, do you think they're kind of coming around to that view? I mean, certainly it looks like From a Brexit point of view, you know, take the Brexit that's on the table because otherwise you might not get any kind of Brexit or a delayed Brexit, which just prolong, which doesn't solve any of these problems anyway. So, do you think there's a change of mood at all?
1: Well, what I've sort of fortunately escaped is is the the day to day bickering and nastiness that Mm -hmm. really has been in the Mm Commons, and I think that kind of hardened people. But there has been a deep, deep erosion of trust, Uh, and therefore I think the figure of Geoffrey Cox is going to be very important because uh, even within the ERG and within the lever group, uh, he's someone who they know was a lever. Mm. Uh, And if he comes back with something which he can recommend as being legally tight, then I think he's probably got a much stronger voice than many of the others. Uh, I don't think the Prime Minister was wise to still uh, be surrounded by people essentially campaign for remain uh and i think her attempts at reaching out at labor came too late and weren't seen as sincere again deeply regret that but we are where we are
0: okay well let's um let's go back to the the big event that explains you know set these set these things in motion um which is the referendum um and um so I'm just going to ask a, a, a sort of broad question about that first, which is: How did a you know German-born Labour MP, um, keen supporter of Tony Blair, who's obviously hugely pro-EU, how 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 is it that you ended up being the chair of um, of the official Leave campaign? Uh,
1: yes, <laughs> well, I, I kind of my 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 either Damascene moment or epiphany uh, really goes back to the European Constitution and. Uh, the shenanigans which led to the Lisbon Treaty. So there we are, 2003 to 2005. Um, I campaigned for a referendum on the Lisbon Treaty because uh, we would have been given clear choices. Um, I thought the Lisbon Treaty was flawed because it increased powers uh, without checks and balances. Um, But I I thought it was a suitable subject for a vote because the options were very clear. So I then went to a period of about sort of 10 odd years when I almost had an a understanding with my whips that they, they decided that whenever anything's got the word Europe in it, it's like it slightly funny. <laughs> and uh, we would negotiate, do you really have to vote against the government or could you just be away for the day? Uh, but there never was any uh, falling out over that uh, after the big falling out of 2005, which was quite brutal and, and unpleasant. Um, So then David Cameron caused the referendum, and I really didn't want that referendum to happen. Uh, I just thought, why now? Uh, What's the purpose? And my original instinct was to sort of say, well, it's a Tory referendum, I'll I'll, I'll take a back seat on that. But then I began to realise that this was a very significant decision um, in British political life. I was an MP. I mean, I wasn't sort of private citizen who could say this is a bit of politics. I, I, I take a rain check on uh, my day job was politics, and then I was. Ter- I really did not want the official Leave campaign to be led by UKIP. Uh, I thought if they were going to be the designated uh, group to do that, it would be a. A pretty rough campaign but also I thought they would lose uh, and therefore at that stage uh, I joined the Vote Leave board and it was important that we showed cross party support uh, so I ended up chairing it, there were Labour members there were Lib Dem members for me it was very important that uh, people like David Owen were on that board You know, someone mm-hmm. who left the Labour Party in, in, in the 80s mm-hmm. because he was pro-European uh, now coming to the conclusion that this one wasn't right. Um, and that really was the journey. We also knew that once we had the designation uh, that the, uh, Boris Johnson and I uh, would play a significant part in that. So it was always the intention that when it came to the television debates, Boris and I would be hosting it because he, the, the the charge against the leavers was these were old... Uh, racist, inward-looking, uh, and not very well-educated people. That that was the kind of portrayal sure. of them. And it was important for us to sort of say, well, no, you can be pretty cosmopolitan and, and, and educated and still think it's the right thing to leave.
0: And just, so to go back a bit, when did you actually, um, when did you actually, Not you know, not just not just your general growing Euroscepticism but when did you actually, can you sort of pinpoint a moment where you thought no actually we should leave the European Union you know not just no more powers to Europe or try and get some powers back but no we're actually better off out
1: I don't think I reached that conclusion until I was so uh, asked by David Cameron which was one of the reasons why I was to begin with very against the the referendum Mm -hmm. Uh, because you see what, what for me the The real thing was, is that if you look back uh, in in the 90s, the Maastricht treaties and the British government decides we will not take part in the euro and we will not take part in Schengen. And you could then, like sort of trains on parallel tracks still go, there were euro countries and there were Schengen countries and there were others. Uh, But of course, once you introduce the euro, you kind of crystallized a divergence. So to me, the, the real, the, the point of departure was you would have euro countries which would have to decide who the sovereign is in terms of the euro. You have to decide or acknowledge that either the Germans go on footing the bill or you create a European finance ministry, mm-hmm. you, compl- you, you, you do deeper integration. And those countries outside the euro need something different. So if Cameron, after he announced the referendum, had come back and said, you know what, the European Union now acknowledges that as a permanent structure, it will have two kinds of member states, euro and non-euro. I would have said, yeah, let's give that one a try. Reasonable step forward. Mm -hmm. But it was the fact that there was an institution which, A, I thought needed deep, deeply reforming. It was an institution that showed no signs of wishing to reform. And then if you had a British referendum where the British people say, dear unreformed European Union, we are fine with you. I thought there's no hope of these guys ever changing.
0: Mm-hmm. So in other words, there, wasn't a, there, was no, there was no path to the sort of Europe you wanted to be a member of. So you had to, that left, the, that left, that left leave. Basically. Having
1: been asked the question yeah. at, at that stage, you, you have to give an answer.
0: Yeah. And but but you so you you said that I think the timing point of not not wanting a referendum is 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 interesting. I mean, you would have been in favour of presumably a referendum next time there was some sort of major constitutional change with Europe, but until then, you were okay to just be your sceptic and.
1: Well, I was okay to try and change from from within, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, unfortunately wasn't terribly successful. Uh, but I would have thought that events. Could have driven it to somewhere, but you see the thing—the thing which was actually most distressing of, of, of it all—is that up until about 2010, uh, the House of Commons would have uh, debates ahead of European Councils. So, if the Prime Minister went to one of Thursday for a European Council meeting, the entire Commons would discuss on the Wednesday the forthcoming Council. Uh, you'd have fisheries debates, you have agriculture debates. And David Cameron thought that even in in the coalition government that his way of dealing with Europe was that if only we stopped talking about it. And that included MPs uh, going less to Brussels, Mm. uh, the fewer Brits being in decision-making positions in Brussels itself. So we had kind of become more withdrawn anyway to our disadvantage. And... I had this real sense that David Cameron himself almost didn't understand the way Europe operated. So when he came back with stuff like saying greater role for European for, for national parliaments, I literally laughed at the time because I said, you mean the kind of red card which in 2002 we negotiated in the European constitution and the British government vetoed it on the basis that it wasn't worth having? Uh, and he thought that was his big... Yeah. So I, I kind of, yeah, I think people like me were forced into saying, uh, if this is the best you can do, it, this really isn't good enough.
0: OK, well, then let's talk about the, the campaign itself. Um, and, and I'll start with the broad mm. question. Why, why do you think you won?
1: Well, there's a very kind of simple answer. When uh, I went up to uh, Manchester on the night of the count, uh, we, I had a sort of simple piece of paper in my pocket which said uh, if the turnout is uh, below 60%, we have won. Mm. If the turnout is anywhere between 60 and 68%, they have won. And if it's over 68%, we have won again, on the basis that uh, if, you, if you go over about 68%, then you have people who normally don't right. vote. you're reaching a very eurosceptic part of the electorate. And we're reaching, pe- we're reaching people who have felt disenfranchised for a long time and never bothered to vote. Mm-hmm. So the simple answer is uh, we, we won because more people voted for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, my nightmare scenario, and, and really it was my nightmare scenario, was that you'd have a turnout, or it would have a result like we had in the last Welsh referendum, that you'd have a turnout of just over 50% and a kind of 0.7% margin, winning yeah. margin. Yeah. Um, but even with that referendum, nobody questioned it. Right. So the thing which really I, I still fail to understand is how the result of a referendum with a massive turnout and a clear majority, you know, 3.8% is a clear majority, uh, still remains unaccepted by a large number of people.
0: Would you have believed that if 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 I told you on the twenty fourth of June in twenty sixteen, if I told you that here we are in twenty nineteen, and you know it's still an open question, really, whether we'll actually leave or not? Arguably, would that that would have surprised you?
1: It would have completely surprised me. Uh, the, The the over the last few months, I'm sort of being reminded of this old Chinese proverb which says things which can't last don't last but they usually last longer than you think they can and this is one of you, you know there will come a moment yeah. when, when this will be resolved but this is really slow motion stuff yeah. uh, now I actually happen to think that that is probably part of number 10 strategy so if you if you're worried about divisions and splits uh, an, an old and tested method of that is it's it's time and talking which tends to uh get things easier but the danger is that you also reach the point that people's views just suddenly go and says look this just it and the danger of that is uh all this talk about extensions uh, mm-hmm. to article 50. Mm-hmm.
0: But, but going back to that I mean you said more people voted for you and the turnout mm-hmm. was very high but but why do you think why do you think it was that um these people who hadn't voted before and or not? I mean, had voted before, but you know, didn't vote very often. How did you manage to reach those voters, and what, what was the message that was successful?
1: Well, if you if you watch the uh, the documentary or the the, the drama uh, yes, yeah, yeah. On, on on Channel Four, which focuses on on, on Dominic Cummings, uh, I think there's lots of it which uh, you know was shown in a way which didn't happen that way. However, <laughs> I think in terms of a portrayal of uh, Dominic Cummings, uh, it, it was brilliant. Uh, and uh, the, the key thing was, and it, at the time it didn't strike me, I remember when I first came into the, the, to the Vote Leaf office and we were, we were sort of preparing for the first television debate. And I said, take uh, Take control. And Dom said, no, 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 it's take back control. That is really, really important. It's not take control, it's take back. And I think that genuinely was a stroke of genius because it kind of, it encapsulated uh, regaining something lost. And And a lot of people had increasingly felt that they weren't being listened to. Uh, and that is and we saw that even after the result. You know, the people were denounced as not knowing what they voted for, that they uh, didn't understand it. Uh you know, we even had some young people going and saying, Well, it's a whole lot of old people, you know, uh,
0: They'll be dead soon. So yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, and 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 seriously you'd have things of saying, Let's have another referendum because X percent of leave voters have died by now on the basis that A, that this was a an an appropriate thing to have said but also the assumption that anybody who, who was young would now, that they all would vote remain either. Mm. So, so I think it was a, a feeling of that things were happening to their lives over which they had no say. And you, you cannot but lay the blame for some of that at the door of all of us as politicians.
0: And since the vote, I mean, that, if you describe that as a wake-up call, how do you think it's been received by the political class?
1: Well, I think this is the, the, the really sad thing uh, about the the negotiations in the last two years. You see, if it was just a question of me getting bored with it and having the urge to retune Radio 4 at 8 in the morning, because Mozart's preferable to any politician at <laughs> 10 past 8, um, that that would be fine. But... What the very people who felt that they've been ignored by politicians have been treated to is two years of internal bickering where the politicians were neg- negotiating with each other and ignoring the voters. And they were negotiating with each other to, to achieve a result which the people hadn't voted for. So it has continued to undermine the the faith in politics, the faith in the capacity of politics and the parties
0: but we i mean i mean some some people would say people on the other side of, of this issue would say that um you know the leave campaign itself exploited in a fairly cynical way exploited um some of the you know political tricks of the trade i mean it was you know the hardly you know what i'm talking about i'm talking about the number on the side of the bus and so on and you know do you feel like your side is anywhere responsible for the, <coughs> the souring of this debate and the general the, that general cynicism that, 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 that exists?
1: I think during the campaigns, uh, anybody who fights elections know, um, you know, each side uh, tries to make the best of what they've got on offer, and, and uh, this is why we don't just hold elections; we're fighting them. Uh, And I remember when I first went into the Vote Leaf office and I said, where does the figure of 350 million come from? I said, it's the pink book, it's 19.4 billion, Uh, actually it's 372 million. So uh, what about the rebate? Well, now we are at the discussion. So if, Mm -hmm. if you say 350 million, someone will say, oh, but that's a net figure. To which you say... It's, this is the gross figure. The, the net is discretionary. It actually mm. isn't as of right. But even if you were to take that out, it'd be 280 million or whatever. It's still a hell of a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So we talked about money. So the, 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 the it's quite interesting. That, but you see
0: why people think that's a fairly cynical way of going about but, it.
1: But I give you a, 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 an example that about a year later, I remember being in the German embassy uh, for a dinner, and I sat next to the editor of the Financial Times who... Was telling everybody about their front page the following day and their uh, editorial about how Brexit is going to cost us 100 billion. So, as he was sitting next to me and in the interest of friendly conversation, I said, Is that 100 billion a net or a gross figure? And he said, Well, it's a gross figure. So I said, Oh, well, 350 million were all right then, weren't they? And he literally just turned his back to me and refused to speak to me for the rest of the evening. <laughs> so, Uh, uh, what what has been different about this one is that usually after the the battle of an election you declare the result and then people get on with their business but this time the battle kept going uh, and the divisions kept deepening and that is what has been different
0: and part of that presumably I mean I think part of that is a structural problem with referenda right that you just you don't the good thing about an ele- election is you elect those people making the promises, and then if they, those promises turn out to be bad ones, you vote against them, and we're in a different situation now. So,
1: Well, I mean, this is the, 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 the big challenge for the political establishment. They have uh, <clears throat> engaged in an exercise of direct participatory democracy, uh, which they have been starting to play, uh, toy with, Since the 90s, we increasingly use them, Uh, whether it's the AV referendum, whether it's Scottish independence, all those kind of things. And somehow the results were always kind of honoured. This one was the first time where not only did the establishment not anticipate the result, it also had no idea what to do with the result. So the majority of MPs... uh, kind of we're trying to work out a way of appearing to say we're honouring the result but undoing it but then they kept compounding the problem by you know first of all the MPs voted for the legal framework of the referendum so anybody who now sort of says oh there should have been a threshold I think it's a very very valid argument but well if you thought there should have been a threshold why didn't you put in the legislation so then they all triggered article 50 But then, most amazingly, they all voted for a general election in 2017, where the two major political parties went into the general election saying they would honour the result. And the only party which actually went into the election by saying, but we want to undo it, were the greatest losers, the Lib Dems. And even for the SNP, if you think about it, uh, you had, I think it's roughly speaking, something like 1.6 million people who voted for Scottish independence and they reckon that something like 400,000 of those voted to leave the EU. So it, the dividing lines are now suddenly all across the political parties, all across geography. In, and it's, and that's what the, our system has not learned to adjust to yet.
0: One of the things the Leave campaign, as you will know very well, deliberately did was keep it very vague in terms of what kind of Brexit we would have. They would... The, the the point the, the 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 electoral logic being if you have a specific plan then suddenly that plan can be picked apart by the other side and so on um do you and that's obviously a very compelling argument right but do you have any you know do you think that that was sort of worth it i mean there's a sort of version of history where you'd fought it on a you if you'd narrowed the the range of outcomes a little bit more you maybe would have saved some of the the trouble that we uh, we were in at the moment
1: Well, I would turn that round because if you you were to look at both sides of the campaign, they actually both said, if you were to leave, you will leave the single market. Uh, And we, on top of it, said, and we want to have a leave which says that it'll be uh, the British Parliament who are the final lawmakers, and it will be the British Parliament which decides who can and cannot come into the country in terms of control of borders. And then you started to have this sort of weird, weird debates of saying, "Oh, uh, but we already have control of borders." And he said, "Well, no, no, we have we have control to ask for your passport, but we cannot decide who cannot who cannot come in." Uh, and then people were going saying, "Well, yes, we're leaving, but we're staying in the customs union and, and 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 the single market." To which you have to say, well, no, actually, this was the one thing both sides said leaving would mean. So the the the." speaking with forked tongues, in, in a sense, uh, was going and continues to go on, in, on, on on both sides in a very curious way, whereas the test for me is, sounds is, is very straightforward. Uh, who's, who will decide on our immigration policy? It's the British Parliament. Who's got the final say over the laws? Uh, it's our courts and, and our Parliament. And can we make independent trade deals? If we can't do those three, we actually haven't left.
0: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. that seems like a good time to move <clears> on from brexit to um um your career more generally and and, and the labor party um so y- y- you were elected to a seat which i think had returned a conservative member of parliament for a century beforehand um in 97 um and then you sort of steadily held on to and built a sort what was a tough seat for labor became a um became became a fairly solid um i mean a tight seat but uh but but you know not quite as um Unlikely as as it had been. So I'm going to start with a very broad question on it, but what did you, what did you learn in that process of turning Edgerston into a safer Labour seat? What did you learn about politics and, ha- and how you actually, how actually you win as a, as a Labour Party?
1: You know, looking at the Labour Party today, I think that the intake of 97 will go in as a, having been a very lucky generation, you know we we came in uh, we had three three terms of a blair government uh, and I think people will look at Blair in years to come uh, with less focus on the decision over Iraq and more on on some of the big good changes uh, and even in two thousand and eight, and I never was a, a great fan of of Brown. Uh, but if you look at 2008, I think Gordon Brown and Alistair Darling were absolutely crucial to getting us through the uh, financial crisis. So, I, so, so in that sense, um, I sort of feel blessed in in having been allowed to, to be part of that period. Uh, and in '97, uh, anyone I think would have won each person. Uh, the the tide just had changed so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, same 2001, 2005, I think, provided you were a, a, a hard-working constituency MP, I think would have won. The big thing was 2010, when each person really, uh, everybody thought we were a goner, and, uh, including me. <laughs> and uh, the, about a year before, about nine months before, a small group of us uh, sat down and said, look, it's 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 very straightforward. We're we either going to accept that we've lost this one. And we make a lot of noise. And so so we, we, we run a noisy campaign uh, and then just lose gracefully. So you do street stalls, you do balloons, you do leaflets, mm-hmm. you, you just create activity. but yeah. you know, Or we said, we are going to throw the rule book out of the window. Uh, we don't do anything which we've done before. And just say, what, what would be the ideal campaign? That requires deep commitment on all of us. Uh, we we will allow ourselves a week off between Christmas and New Year, but it's and um, we we went for the latter, and uh, it, it kind of was a a, a twin twin approach, uh, which the which the strapline was uh, I'm Labour, my values are Labour, but I think for myself. So that meant that we were giving a Labour promise, but. But if you get vote for Giesler, you get something in addition to that. Uh, and we were so we didn't do any national material. We kept doing a lot of you know phoning people. My my entire campaign in in the end was on the back of the telephone. I made one thousand one hundred eighty six phone calls, I think, uh, all of which were followed up by handwritten notes. Uh, and there'd be conversations between five minutes and 45 minutes. And these were all people who either had voted for me before and had doubts or were thinking of voting for me. Uh, and we kind of built on about years and years and years of genuine community engagement. And what I learned from that was that we we reckoned that in 2010, given The perfect conditions, which were, uh, I'd established myself as a sort of hardworking, independent thinking MP. My opponent, whilst was a very good local councillor, wasn't politically very shrewd. We had the most enormous network uh, of volunteers coming in. I think of it something like 500 people on the ground on the day. But we reckon with at that stage that you probably with all those perfect conditions can withstand between six and seven percent of a national swing. I think when it's higher than that, however magnificent you may think you are, uh, if your party's on the way out, then you can you can hold something back, but not very, very far. So it taught me that the kind of the ego of of, of the MP, you, you can do do a bit. It taught me that even if you want to be an independent, don't rubbish your own party because you you know you're still the local franchise it's the party and you but the key thing which i learned was that there is a process of genuine listening and the electors and the voters understand that and i give you an example of that we we realized that immigration was starting to be something which was simmering um so Labour legislation was going through on a bill which was suggesting a community cohesion fund that people should speak English. So we did, uh, we wrote to 18,000 households and said, this is the legislation, what do you think? Uh, We went back to them three months later and said, this is what you think, but you know this doesn't add up. Uh, You can't have both. Uh, And we spent about a year and a half going backwards and forwards, including at the end doing a... A, a public meeting of about 100 people who sort of were sitting in tables of 10. And we invited the then immigration minister, Phil Wallace, to come with us to just talk through. And the the lessons from that was, A, I remember taking Phil to the station and he was saying, I said, good grief, that room was... They were all real punters, you know. I said, yeah, yeah, Phil, they were all real punters, <laughs> Because the, the the politicians are so used to sort of organizing these kind of meetings and you, you just invite all your party faithfuls. Mm. Well... Sorry, you already know what bought, bought they think. But the key lesson from that is that if you genuinely engage people, they then are prepared to accept an outcome which even they themselves wouldn't have chosen, but because they've got faith in the process, they will accept the outcome. And that's what's so dangerous about politics now, is that if... If general elections are won by forming broad coalitions of views and opinions, which requires some trust and some confidence, I don't think the people at the moment either have much trust or faith in what the political parties stand for. But they're also questioning the process itself, uh, and when those two come together, then I think you need to be really careful. Careful.
0: And and in terms of your. Um you know, how, how, sort of how to win elections mm. bit of things. For lots of people, um, the 2017 election was sort of a, was a sort of, was a sort of rebuttal to conventional wisdom on, on how, how you win an election from, from, at least on the left. And, and you know, it was this, there's this argument that uh, Corbyn did what people thought you couldn't do, which was stick to a fairly left-wing agenda and engage parts of the electorate that just didn't vote before. Um Do you see that? What do you make of the the, the last election? And I mean, you weren't fighting it, which um, probably makes a difference. But do you see that? Do you disagree with that? I mean, do you? Why do you think Labour sort of outperformed expectations?
1: Well, I still have to confess it's one of life's great mysteries to me uh, that Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party. Uh, But again, it came out of a sense of complacency. Uh, you know, it's the same when uh, Ed Miliband defeated David, you know, David thought he had it so much in the bag uh, and, you know, whenever you go into elections, never ever assume uh, that you've won it until you've won it and you know, some of the Labour MPs uh, you know, like Margaret Beckett now you know, she nominated Jeremy Corbyn on the basis just to make him on the ballot paper, never thought he would win Um but the 2017 election, uh, by that stage, I was uh, having decided not to run. Actually, a decision which I would made in 2015. I, I was clear in my mind. This was the last general election I'm fighting. Uh,
0: so even as you were doing all the all of the EU referendum stuff, you knew yeah, that you were.
1: Yeah, I, I knew I wasn't going to uh, going to stand again. And and it was that had to do with the fact that I thought by 2020 I would be 65. I would have done 23 years. And the thing which kind of shook me was uh, when in 2012, my husband rather unexpectedly died. And, you know, you sort of then look and say what's life all about? And you say 20 years, 20 odd years in MP is great. But now I've got grandchildren and want to do other mm-hmm. things. So by 2017, uh, I was chairing Change Britain and we continued to do a lot of polling and we did Four thousand interviews around the election time, two thousand before and two thousand afterwards, uh, and it was around not so much the, the voting intentions. Uh, it was around the set of values. You know, what do you think is important to you, all and, and those, and from that I could see the coalition for Labour.
0: You talking about the Labour coalition. Yeah. It? yeah.
1: So you have two thousand and seventeen. You have a a prime minister uh, that, that kind of just. Gets out one morning and says, "I'm going to have a general election," uh, and supported them by the House of Commons. But for the voters, they thought we had a fixed Parliament Act. They they could sense that Theresa May called an election because she wanted a bigger majority. And voters never like being called to the ballot box just to to for the, for the benefit of politicians. And the the Lib Dem vote collapsing. Uh, you see what rather unfairly, but then politics is unfair. Um, Nick Clegg's decision to have a minister in every department, uh, or almost every department, meant that he could not go to the electorate by showing uh, particular achievements. Uh, you know, like in Germany, the coalitions, the Lib Dems tend to have the foreign ministry. But he was kind of tainted with every Tory decision. Mm-hmm. And the best thing he could do is go and say, oh, just think what the Tories would have done without Mm -hmm. us. Whilst that was true, because if you talk to the civil servants, they actually look back to their coalition years as being years of good government. Mm -hmm. Um, The the voters didn't go for that. Uh, And so it was everything which was not the Tories was kind of collapsing. And uh, Jeremy Corbyn was seen as this great man of principle who a lot of the young people thought brought freshness to the process, Whereas I would go and say, well, this is politics circa 1983. But of course, if you're a first-time voter, that is new to you. Whereas for me, it was just no change for 40 years. But what was the most curious thing of those uh, uh, interviews which we did is that the under-35s, because they seem to have really contradictory values, they seem to want to nationalize the railways, They had faith in the NHS. They didn't believe in the contributory principle uh, on the basis that by the time I retire, there won't be a state pension. And I went back to them and said, look, what are we dealing with here? Are these Corbyn's children or are they Thatcher's children? And a little bit more digging emerged that either they were neither. They wanted the railways nationalised, not because they kind of want the means of production in the hands of the workers, Mm -hmm. Uh, they just thought, well, it's privatized, it costs the earth, and it's rubbish. Yeah, So, might as well... just an alternative. To yeah, me. and they like the NHS because it's an institution ever since the blue logo, which you see everywhere, even though the NHS is, isn't run centrally anymore. It looks as if it's a monolithic service. And it's seen as one of the only services which provides for young and old, uh, rich and poor, and therefore them, appeals to them. And the reason why they didn't believe in the contributory principle anymore was also things like tuition fees. They they suddenly said, well, the state's rubbish, and what do I get out of it? Now, the reason why this is dangerous for politicians is if that's what the under-35s think, um, i.e. the state isn't delivering, and you also in, in, in a system where the demand for services goes up all the time, whether you're left or right, But your ability to raise taxes is diminishing. You know, how are we going to tax the Ubers and the Googles of this world and Amazons of this world? Um, That is heading towards a pretty toxic combination. And uh, I think the politicians really need to wake up to that. One of my answers is that you you actually do need to bring taxation raising and taxation spending closer to the personal experiences. So... I would be one who'd advocate that the, the strategic regional mayors ought to have tax-raising powers. Uh, and then you would link what you raise locally to what you spend locally. But th- there's a big disconnect, mm. I think, going on.
0: Mm. And um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you more questions about yeah, the Labour Party, okay. given everything that's happening oh, yeah. at the moment. Um, so the uh, the independent group, which obviously launched uh, last week, um, now I know it's safe to say that their brexit policy is to reverse the result of the referendum uh you campaigners obviously you're not you you know you're not with them on that issue but um but beyond that what i mean what 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 how how did you feel watching you know their resignation speeches and and reading what they wrote about kind of the state of the party that that you represented for so long
1: well i mean this is the 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 real difficulty for, for for people like me uh and this is why I understand what uh, Ian Austin has done, is in a sense that he resigned the Labour whip and his his Dudley uh, constituencies were Leavers, uh, but he's not joined the new group on the mm-hmm. basis that he, he wants to deliver Brexit, but he resigned over anti-Semitism. I find it... I just find it so sad, and I'm sort of wearing my, my hat as a German here... Um, that my party ends up being split, not just over Europe, I, that I can deal with, but the, the anti-Semitism row, of all the parties that should not have happened, and there seems to be almost a kind of historic ignorance as to why this is. This is just so much worse than anything else. Mm. Um, so I kind of look at them and I come back to if you are, if you are like me at heart. A continental social democrat. You are currently homeless, and that's pretty sad, irrespective of Europe policy or not Europe policy.
0: So, if you were still an MP, do you think you would you would be <coughs> at this point in time? Do you think you would still be in, in the Labour Party, or, or would you be with Ian Austen and Frank Field? And
1: I, I have been asking myself that question, and I, you know, you never know what you would do, uh, and what I find so so curious about the world of politics Uh, in 2005 when uh, I was essentially sort of well four of us, it was Kate Hoey, Frank Field, Graham Stringer and I, Mm. uh, we were treated to a sort of public hanging in the Parliamentary Labour Party in committee room 14 over demanding a referendum Um, and uh, you know, Frank is now standing, is now in there as an independent what would I do uh I just don't know. I I hope I would have had the courage to do what Ian Austin did, because I think he's taken the hardest of all routes. Uh he's just gone out on and on, on my own. Um I've been asking myself that about Labour Party membership. Mm, that was me, my and, next uh, question. So, sort of a a, a friend of mine's sort have of texted me saying, Are oh, you still a member of the Labour Party? and I texted back saying Oh, no, I'm staying staying in because I'm going to annoy them. Uh, And, you see, this is always the big question. Do you you stay in and fight from inside? Um, And I think in in terms of my my party membership, uh, I have as much right to be a Labour Party member as anyone else. But I fully understand what they've done.
0: And do you... It would be... I mean, the question is... The the issue would be anti-Semitism. I mean, that would be... If you did leave, that would be that above all else would it or is it there
1: yeah no i i think it would 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 be that one mm. because in terms of europe uh i think the the, the attitude to to the european union uh it, it not only has it divided the the, the 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 parties historically uh but also the parties have kind of come full circle you know the very first time tony blair fought an election was when michael Foote was a lead a leader of the labor mm. party and he promised withdrawal from the common market uh so so labor sort of discovered the the the, the European union in the nineties uh, and became this sort of totally pro pro eu party uh, so so these things go and they come and go but the anti-Semitism stuff i just i i just find completely and utterly unacceptable
0: why do you think the I mean, how do you th- explain to me you, your thinking on the leadership and how it's handled? How it handled it? I mean, how is it? Why is it that it's become this this huge issue?
1: I think historically there has always been a a, a strand of antisemitism on the left, uh, and it had to do with associating uh, um, bankers and and money and all those kind of things. So so there's nothing new in 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 that, um, and then i think there's been a whole generation that doesn't understand uh the the anti-sionism and anti-semitism and the state of israel and that all of those things are actually fairly differentiated debates uh and we we suddenly became a party that sort of said uh, anything outside the state of israel uh can do no wrong and it's the state of Israel has become the same as how we approach, uh, Semitism, anti-Semitism and and you know things were said which in any other context wouldn't be acceptable. I mean, I similarly have to say I've found over the last years things being said to me about being German, which if you if you replace the word German with just about if you'd if said about Nigerian or Indian or Pakistani, mm-hmm. they would have said, this is, tut- this is utterly unacceptable. So, that,
0: I presume that's to do with you being a Brexiteer too. Yeah, so.
1: and, and I think people need to be just a little bit more careful about their language.
0: But, I mean, the surprising thing to me is the, you know, that it's, it's the institutional side of it when there's a complaint made about something dreadful that someone said who's a Labour Party member and it goes through these processes and then they aren't, you know, they aren't dealt with in the way you'd expect them
1: to be. It's a that, but also uh, what kind of to me at the the, the very week when the the that group of Labour MPs left is Derek Hatton was coming back into the Labour Party, <laughs> and I just blinked and thought, what is going on? And but you see the other thing, which when when I joined the Labour Party, uh, which was in the nineties, I don't think I could have joined the Labour Party under Michael Foot. Uh, uh, but, but you know, John Smith, Blair, that, that I, I felt so instinctively at home there. Uh, but we suddenly got to a point with groups coming into the party who, who would define who is a proper member. And if you, if you disagreed with them, uh, the answer was, well, why don't you leave? sorry, you know, if if you've been a Labour MP for 20 years and then suddenly says, you know, and I'm now defining what is a proper Labour Party member. And the leadership leadership allows that to happen because these things happen from the top. And you should have just said, absolutely, no, this is unacceptable. Uh, But they haven't taken the action.
0: And specifically, obviously, the, you know, the Blair years, which are the ones you're sort of most ideologically kind of associated with, are the ones that, and also the most electorally successful years in recent history for the Labour Party, are the ones which if you sort of stood by that record, I think even without, even if you forget about Iraq, um, you know, that it's not deemed to be Labour anymore, necessarily.
1: That was a big error of the, the on, on Ed Meliband, that we were thrashing our own record. Uh, and it wasn't just short-sighted, but also, it, it just sort of never ceases to amaze me when you, when you look back on uh, whether it's the minimum wage, whether it's Sure Start, whether it's the record investment in the NHS, the, the kind of big structural changes were happening. And rather than being proud of being a a, a reforming government, we were thrashing our own record. We were doing the opposition's job. Um, it's just not a good place to be. in.
0: And you, you know, you're, Jeremy Corbyn's the leader now. He's not especially popular with voters um increasingly sort of magic seems to have rubbed off a bit um in terms of the party um but regardless of personnel the, the the profile of the average labor member has has changed a lot and it's a the party's changed to a much more left-wing um uh group um so you know do you, you describe yourself as a social democrat who's homeless mm. politically at the moment do you you know do you see what do you what's your prediction about the labor party i mean do you do you see that it's sort of save it can be saved and that that, that that there's a sort of social democratic future for it or do you think it's regardless of who the leader is you know the next leader will be uh, from the same wing as corbyn
1: i think the party has to make a, a very serious decision whether it wants to be a party of government or not uh, there is there are some options here. You're either going to uh, turn into the, the UK equivalent of the Democrats, which uh, is a party which is kind of rights-based. It's uh, public sector workers as its main uh, core of voter base. Uh, it, it lives in the big cities. Um, and the demography of cities is changing. Uh, you know, If you look at a place like birmingham or manchester where at one stage the city centers were sort of deprived communities whereas now it's young professionals living in, in refurbished flats and therefore mm-hmm. the, the the voting patterns are changing uh and under our current sort of uh, if if that is what's happening to the labor party and the current voting system and the, the distribution i think what will happen is that the cities will get redder and the countryside will get bluer and it would be very difficult for either party to uh, form a government because you just win your own, your constituencies with higher majorities, but you don't do what Blair achieved. Uh, you reach out to people who before hadn't voted for you. That is this one option, uh, and that would really stress test our system, which with First Past the Post, we make coalitions between in, in, inside the big political parties rather than between parties. Um, on the other hand, uh, I sort of look at some of the, the, the new generation that's coming through. Uh, I don't want to sort of tarnish her future reputation by, by singling her out for, for praise, but if I look at people like Lisa Nandy, who is the MP for Wigan... Uh, who's doing a lot of work on uh, centres for towns, comparing what what is happening to our towns, how it's, you know, uh, demographic shifts, age shifts. Uh, There's a kind of Labour Party out there where I look at and I think, you know, the Labour Party doesn't have to be just the Democrats who live in the big cities. Uh, That understanding of what the roots were... uh, hasn't gone. So I'm actually, despite having sounded terribly gloomy, uh, I am hopeful when I look at some of, the, some of the newer faces that are coming through. That was Gisela Stewart on Brexit and the Labour Party. Thanks for listening.